Our gospel reading this morning is from the gospel of Matthew, starting in the 18th chapter in the 10th verse. As you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Advent is a season of expectancy. What are you hoping for? Is it the perfect gift? The perfect Christmas in the weeks ahead? Is it success? or family, some sort of fulfillment, thinking about what it means to live the best life. What though happens if those things aren't possible? What if, and I'll be the uh, bummer in the room for a moment, what if tragedy enters in? What if cancer takes its toll? What if brokenness in relationship shows up? What if you don't get the gift or the job or relationship or the win you were hoping for? Will you, will I, will we be crushed? What if our hope is out of our control? As we come into God's Word this morning, I'm going to suggest that Whether in or out of control, there is a possibility for hope. And actually, the best hope is the hope that's not in our control at all. Crisis, which shows up in our lives, can lead us to despair. But it can also be a laser beam focus. A laser beam focus on what's most important. What to expect And Advent is a season of that expectancy. And what can we expect? What we can expect is, I shared this this past Wednesday night, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul asked this question to help us think about that. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? What we discovered this morning that Emmanuel, God with us, He brings us hope. And this hope transcends all circumstance. This hope will not, does not, it won't disappoint. To give you a glimpse of some of the emotion that I think is present in our text today, in particular in Matthew 18, A couple of years ago, we were mountain biking in the Hamas, and uh, there was a group of us. And Luther, I noticed, had, because his trail mates had come back, and so I knew he was separated from his uh, fellow mountain bikers. 
Now, before I go any further, my wife would want you to know that uh, you don't need to be nervous. Uh, There were adults in front of him and behind him. He just didn't know it. But he was, for a while there, from his perspective, quite alone on the trail. And once I realized it, I turned back towards him. And I learned later that then he turned back as well towards me. And you know, when I encountered him on the trail, the fear that he had from feeling like he was alone there in that wooded trail, or the success and pride that he had from uh, making it on his own for that period of time, that all melted away and became secondary to the joy of being reunited. That's just a small, small glimpse, small glimpse of God's rejoicing and glad heart when one of His lost ones are reunited. When He comes after us, when we turn around to receive Him. This story reminds us that God brings us hope in relationship, in restoring that relationship, in reuniting us with Himself. As a matter of fact, the whole Bible, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, is a testimony in the midst of our despair of being apart from God. But the narrative doesn't end with our despair. It always, always begins and ends with God coming after us. He comes after us because we who are lost, whether we are lost because we were once in and backslid and made sinful mistakes or because we're lost and we've never come to know Christ yet. Either way, this lostness is a serious condition and underestimated in the English word lost because in Greek, we understand it the more powerfully word it really is, it really means destroyed. The condition of being lost is one who's at risk of being destroyed. And so, in this risky, precarious situation, which is so often the human experience, from beginning to end, God sees our lostness and comes after us. This whole chapter, and we'll just take a few verses of it today, but this whole chapter of Matthew 18 is an exploration of God redeeming us from our lostness, coming after us, and inviting us to to share that with others and bring in His good news to others. The serious nature of being lost and the joy of being restored. So how do we access this hope? This hope that God really is with us, that God really is coming after us in our condition of being lost. We access it through receiving in humility, in heeding God's Word. And ultimately, in humility and heeding, we discover, even in our helplessness, that hope is found from the one who is with us. Let me just take a moment and talk about 
some of the evidence for God coming after you. Even in anticipation of this text this morning, I want you to think about how God has throughout the human experience been coming after us. First, he comes after us in giving us life. God comes after us in creation. Scientists know that if our earth was just a bit closer to the sun, it'd be too hot to sustain life. A bit too far and too cold to sustain life. We are in the perfect position for life here on this earth. You might say that our earth is fine-tuned for life. The DNA packed into ourselves, the information there that orders and, and structures this biological life that we live. Well, where does that information come from? We know it always comes from intelligence. God, fine-tuning for life, gives life to us in creation. He comes after you and me before we were even born. He comes after us in creation. God also comes after us in history. What do I mean by that? I mean that this text that reveals to us who God is has been borne out and tested in history. Archaeology, for example, doesn't answer the question who God is, but it does tell us that the story that reveals to us who God is is marked in history, in real time and place. What was foretold in Isaiah, as was read today, was unmistakably completely fulfilled hundreds of years later by the life of Christ, a life confirmed by historians and archaeologists through a text that's faithful. Did you know that we have over 5,800 Greek ancient manuscripts, faithful manuscripts? That's more than any other ancient text. And in addition to that, we have a secondary collection of about 24,000 texts, not quite as old. So that this telling is accurate and verifiable as an ancient document and as the word of life. I'll give you an example. Maybe you stumbled as you read and follow along in the reading of the gospel today in those four verses. Yes, I said four, 10 through 14. You're thinking I didn't do the math right. There's five verses. But take a look in your Bibles. You won't easily find verse 11. It's not like someone took a pair of scissors and cut it out. It's because... We know from these ancient texts now, especially in the last 60 years of uh, new discovery in these 5,800 ancient texts, that verse 11 was only found in later, newer texts. The oldest manuscripts don't have it. So we put it in the notes. It's actually, we think, a commentary. It's almost a direct quote from Luke 19.10. Verse 11 is a commentary on how Jesus used this parable In one context, in Luke, he used it. Most historians and scholars think he just told the same parable twice. One to a community of those who weren't yet ever in the body of Christ. And one to believers who were falling astray. And he used this story for both purposes. Both to bring hope. But the point I'm sharing with you today is that this word 
is faithful. And so God comes after us in creation. God comes after us in the reality of history, in this real world that we live in. And God comes after you in relationship. And this is where we'll pick up the text. You see, God exists in relationship. You've heard me talk about it theologically in the past and perichoretically or perichoresis. God is complete. And so why would he seek out other relationship with us? He doesn't need us. He lives in relationship. He is fully complete. And yet out of his great love for us, he comes after us, not out of his need, but out of his love, his sacrificial love. We get that in this parable today. The hearers who first heard it would have thought, a hundred sheep, this guy's rich. He doesn't need that lost one. 99, he's still rich. He doesn't go out after the lost one because of his need. He goes out after the lost one because of his love. His wealth is complete, and yet he still comes after the one who is lost. And so God comes after us in creation. God comes after us in history. God comes after us in relationship. And how do we get access to this relationship, to this hope that won't disappoint? Well, it's revealed in our text. We come humbly, humbly receiving Humbly receiving and heeding God's word. Even in our helplessness, it leads to hope. And this, starting in chapter 18, the fourth discourse of Matthew's gospel, the fourth of five discourses in Matthew's gospel to echo the five books of the Torah. Matthew's telling us something. God is telling us something that this is a new law, a new way for us to come in relationship with God. And after explaining the serious nature of sin and just the preceding verses, and before that, the access of childlike faith in the beginning of chapter 18, when the disciples wanted to know what it would mean or what it means to be great, Jesus explains it further now in verse 10, when he says, don't despise these little ones, the little ones who... The greatest of angels, those who are in the presence of God, keep an eye on. I want you to pick up and understand a little bit more about this image of children and little ones that Jesus is using here. You see, in our culture today, we think of children or, or little ones as folks to be listened to and reckoned and, and sometimes in, uh, in some places even, uh, I think, falsely little adults, but the point is that they have value and and significance in our culture. In the first century, although unlike other cultures before them, uh, those in Judaism honored their and respected their children, the, the social status of a child was low. The social status of a child in this uh, day and age was considered almost to the point of worthlessness. And so for Jesus to say that we should come as little children 
or come as little ones, expanding the children view to all those in less and lower social statuses would have been shocking. Shocking to the hearer. Just as shocking as it would to hear that this rich sheep herder would go after the one. Jesus is making waves here. And he's letting us know that we come humble like children, humble like the low in class, that that is the way to hope. And humble, as one author put it, is not a characteristic to attain, but a description of the heart. In other words, if you're going out and at a job interview and the interviewee said, what's your greatest strength? You wouldn't say, well, I'm very humble, right? It's, it's counterintuitive. It's not, it's not something we brag on, right? It's a condition of our heart. And what does that condition look like? Well, it looks like one who is willing to receive. Because if we receive grace, then we're acknowledging our sin. If we say we need forgiveness, then we know that we've wronged. That's why the need for forgiveness can be such an offense to so many today. Humility reminds us to turn around, to turn back from our way towards God and receive pure receptivity, a reception of the grace that God has given us. And so we assume a status, a least among us, to receive this. We must remember to enter the kingdom, one must learn all over again what it means to be helplessly dependent on a parent who can be trusted, as one author put it, to the uttermost as no human parent can be. Completely dependent on the one who is coming after us. Alone on that trail, when Luther felt alone, he didn't know someone was coming after him. Sometimes we feel like that too, that we are alone in this world, left to our own devices. But the promise, the hope that is being proclaimed in this trustworthy message from God's word today is this, that God indeed is coming after you. Not because of your goodness, but because of His. In fact, your condition of being lost is very likely your own fault. And yet, God doesn't look at that. He comes after you because He loves you. He doesn't come after you to somehow complete Himself. He's already complete. He comes after you because He loves you. That's why verse 11 that isn't, in the text there, but in your notes you'll find is a commentary from Luke 19 on what God is doing. For the Son of Man, it says, came to save the lost. Save those at risk of being destroyed. This story is for you. Jesus is sharing this for you. Are you sharing this story, inviting in your home, to the rest of the flock, if God is for us, how can we be refusing the little ones? Whatever status we might have or not have, even in the life of this congregation, not one of us 
Whether we sit in the front row or the back or behind the glass or in the family room or in the choir loft or uh, up by the pulpit, all of us come at an equal status as little ones needing to humbly receive the grace that God has for us. And if that's our status, then we should welcome other little ones to it as well. God rejoices then when we are reunited with him. Reunited, the joy that he has is palatable. Reunited with him in the same way that I had when I was reunited with my son, but in so much greater fashion. God restores us in relationship. And that relationship that we humbly receive from him is key. When I'm counseling uh, couples preparing to be married, I invite them to focus not even on the circumstance of planning the wedding, but on the marriage covenant, on the marriage itself, on the relationship that's being established in love. You see, uh, storms come. It did for Joy and I. A winter storm came when we were planning on being married in January in the Cascade Mountains. It seemed like a good idea at the time. But then a 50-year storm rolled in. And the retreat center that uh, our small band of 30 were going to be heading to the next day. Uh, well, actually, Joy got the message. She, I was at my parents' house. She was at her hotel room with, uh, with a friend. And her girlfriend had left the room and just left a, a, a phone message. I don't know why she didn't tell her this in person, but she wrote a note that she got radioed uh, and then phoned to us from the bed and breakfast near the retreat center that we were going to go to. And this is the note that she read just the day before we were to head across the mountains to head over to the Cascades. And our whole wedding party was already in Seattle at the time. Uh, The note read, uh, Avalanche, wedding's been canceled. Fortunately, a dear uh, friend of the family and godfather to many and Joy's family, the pastor who is marrying us, said to us wisely, well, you've got three days to plan this. Uh, you've got three whole days. You know, the good news is the bride and the groom both showed up at the wedding. It was about the relationship, not the circumstance. And so even through our losses, They can be pathways to hope, to remind us in our helplessness to come to Jesus. The wedding only points to the covenant. And that covenant is established even on a deeper level. That covenant that marriage symbolizes the covenant relationship between us and God. And we come humbly before Him recognizing that He's the one that abandoned heaven for us. He's the one that came after us. And so if God is for us, regardless of circumstance, who could be against us? We have hope. Relocate your hope, not in your heroics, not in your goodness, not in your status, but in God's. Imagine being lost at sea, completely buffeted by the waves. Completely buffeted by the waves, you are helpless and hopeless. 
until that rescue helicopter rolls in and that rescue swimmer comes down. You relocate your happiness and hope then, don't you? Well, Jesus came down from heaven taking on the lowly status of a baby so that you could be lifted up to him. Jesus wasn't spared from being lifted up to the cross so that you and I wouldn't be. He pays the price for our sins so that we can be restored with him. God comes after you. God comes after me. And so how dare we not receive? How dare we not share to the least of these? How dare we think we are higher than someone else? when all of us are helplessly receiving. Let's share this good news so that when we walk before God's table of grace today, we all, each of us, come equally humble, come equally heeding, come equally in need. For as Song Reckless says, you don't deserve it, you can't earn it, so just receive it. Then share it. Share it by bringing folks to worship this Advent. Share it by welcoming folks in your home. Share it by the kindness that you share with your colleagues and your fellow students. Share the story revealed to us in history so that others can know that God is coming after them. Let us receive it. Let us share it. Our greatness comes through humility and receiving the relationship God has for us. Our purpose comes from by heeding God's word. And so we can remember this day, God, Emmanuel, with us, brings us hope. Amen.